I don't need to go to COP for that. Uh, I don't need to go anywhere where actually most of the agenda is already set in stone. And what is essentially is going to happen is one very long press conference. COP28 has just begun. The attention of all those who care about the climate crisis and work to influence governments and institutions to adopt effective mitigations and adaptations measures is on Dubai. It is the first COP held since the full release of the latest update in March 2023 of the sixth assessment report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. This report summarizes and synthesizes the most up-to-date climate science and provides the best scientific basis to set climate policy. Act now or it will be too late. This was the main message of the IPCC synthesis report. The Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, called it a survival manual for humanity. This may sound rhetorical, but unfortunately, it is not. Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Cambiamento. Tapir. Gerdelecte. Sacula Ijaia. Foot. Change. Slow Food, the podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to Slow Food, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the beauty and complexity of good, clean and fair food systems. I'm Valentina Gritti, I'm your host and a Slow Food Youth Network activist. On our podcast we meet changemakers around the world who are working towards a more sustainable food system and promote a slow lifestyle. This episode is part of the series Slow Food Goes Brussels, where we dissect the political debates linked to the greatest challenges food and agriculture are facing. Today, I'm delighted to host two very special guests to discuss some updates from COP28 with a special eye on how food systems are driving the climate crisis and what solutions are on the table. Raj Patel is a British Indian academic, journalist, activist and writer. His latest work is a documentary, The Ants and the Grasshopper. Rash Patel agreed to connect with us to share his thoughts and expectations on this conference of the parties. Slow Food President Edward Muchibi is also with us to dialogue with him. Welcome Rash Patel and Edward Muchibi to Slow Food, the podcast. It's no secret that industrial agriculture plays a major role in warming the planet. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change estimates that food systems could produce as much as 37% of global greenhouse gas emissions. On science.org we can read that even if we were to stop all emissions right now, our food system's emissions alone would soon push global warming beyond the 1.5 degrees Celsius Paris target. So before diving into COP28, let's shed some light on this. Eddie, my first question is for you. How are food systems driving the climate crisis? Uh, thank you, Valentina. One thing which we have to note about uh, the uh, modern industrialized uh, agri-food model that is operating in the food system that we have has dominated and asserted itself over the last 50 or so years. 
So it has uh, come, of course, with a lot of benefits uh, in terms of increased productivity, increased yield, increased uh, land under cultivation. But this has also come with a lot of uh, impact on the environment, on the climate, on the social uh, well-being of so many communities uh, and also on the ecosystem. And this impact has come in form of uh, devastating uh, pollution, unbearable soil erosion, also a lot of uh, destroyed and uh, like unimaginable destruction of uh, ecosystems and landscapes, as well as uh, increased inequalities in the communities, in the socioeconomic lives of the different communities. And then one of the biggest impact of this uh, industrialized model that is in, in which the current food system operates is the increasing loss of agricultural diversity, loss of uh, biodiversity on the planet. And this is only uh, not in the number of species, but also when we are talking about biodiversity, we are also meaning the biological and cultural diversity. When I, when I travel to many different parts of the world, especially in Africa, the continent that I know very well, traveling from uh, Lilongwe to Mozuzu in Malawi, you see how the industrial system has caused a lot of uh, dependency on foreign seeds that uh, it's evident by the increase in the number of uh, uh, foreign seed shops and also the increased use of uh, fossil fuels. You keep seeing so many tractors with a lot of fumes. During the maize growing season, you see a lot of uh, people carrying knapsack sprayers, spraying agrochemicals. All these uh, oil-derived inputs and oil-based inputs are as a result uh, of this system. And also looking at uh, destruction, when you look at the land use changes that have happened over the years in many parts of the world, even here in Uganda where I come from, you see a lot of uh, natural forest uh, cover is shrinking uh, day by day because of the extensive industrialization of production of agricultural products uh, like sugarcane to feed into the growing uh, industry, but also a lot of uh, species are disappearing in these areas because of the, uh, like what we call aerial sprays of agrochemicals. So the ways through which the current system is driving the climate crisis, it's making life unbearable on this planet, not only for humans, but also for a lot of other species and other dimensions of life. On the contrary, we have seen uh, a growing change uh, also on the opposite side of the current production system. We've, we are seeing a lot of people taking up agroecology. And it's no mistake that the IPCC uh, has uh, specifically endorsed agroecology as a climate solution. Where, while this, the, the current system is so destructive, it's creating a lot of inequalities. But again, there is a solution, which is uh, one of the low-hanging fruits of the change that we need to make. That is agroecology as a, a clear and working climate solution together with the empowerment of local communities to transform their production systems to resist the growing cancer of chemical-based inputs and also fossil fuel-based inputs, and also the potential, with the potential to strengthen the resilience to climate change with multiple co-benefits. So we need to work more in this direction. As slow food, we know that to achieve food sovereignty without affecting the planet, we have to go towards agriculture because it's not just a set of agricultural practices, but a vision that focuses on biodiversity protection and preservation, conservation of ecosystems, and the skills of communities and the needs of the communities, and also to bridge the socioeconomic divide that exists among uh, farming communities, the socioeconomic divide that exists among indigenous peoples and the non-indigenous peoples. So this is 
the system that we can do to bring about uh, long-term food security for everyone on this planet. Thank you, Eddie. I think it's really important to point out that food systems are not all the same and don't have the same impact on the climate. Industrial food systems like monocultures, industrial livestock, high fertilizer and chemical use, processing, transportation and food waste, they are enormous drivers of climate change, while small-scale agroecological farming and indigenous food systems comparatively produce significantly less greenhouse gas emissions and can even work to sequester carbon in healthy ecosystems. Systems. So my next question is for you, Raj. Could you explain to us which parts of agriculture are driving the climate crisis? Well, I think Eddie said it perfectly. You know, the the modern food system. You know, I mean, it's it's gone large over the past 50 years, but it is essentially colonialism, a vision of colonial capitalism that uh, has been going since you know the 1400s and. You have to look at the characteristics of that to see how it drives climate change. Uh, I mean, certainly when it comes to looking at the greenhouse gas footprint from agriculture, there are sort of three main areas. Uh, one is just the theft of land. Uh, so in general, agriculture contributes about a third of human uh, anthropocentric greenhouse gases. Uh, and the rest is shared between energy, transport, uh, you know, all the other things that we we know and hate. Um, but food is a really substantial part of that. So a third of all the, the greenhouse gas emissions come from the food system. And it's about equal parts, three things. One is the theft of land. So when you go in and you decide, oh, you know, what, what, what this land really needs is sugarcane, for instance, uh, which was the first major industrial commodity crop that you see in islands like Madeira when the Portuguese colonized that island uh, off the, the west coast of Africa. You know that you had to chop down the forest, and when you clear the forest, you destroy uh, not just the trees, but also you know you, you destroy the ecosystem that sequesters all the carbon underneath the ground. Most of the carbon uh, that is sequestered at the moment on on land is happening underground, and when you destroy the trees, you destroy this massive machine that takes sunlight and drives it into the ground. Uh, so the land clearing is an important part of the carbon footprint. In total, it's about 11%. percent of all greenhouse gas emissions come from land use change. Then you've actually got the, the process of agriculture and rearing livestock. We're going to talk about meat and that's going to be a problem because you know, we need to make some very clear distinctions between industrial agricultural meat production and uh, artisanal peasant uh, and pastoralist kinds of food systems that slow food has celebrated for, for a very long time, which are much more sustainable. Nonetheless, uh, industrial meat production and Uh, you know, the, the kinds of fossil fuels that get used in agriculture, they get used in uh, pesticide manufacture, all of that uh, accounts for about 13% of, of total greenhouse gas emissions. And then there's the last part, um, which is uh, the, the process whereby the stuff in the fields uh, or, you know, the, the, the meat from the, the factories gets processed and rendered into uh, things that you buy at the supermarket. So about 10% of all emissions on earth come from the transport, processing, packaging, retail, and then the decomposition when we throw the food away of our food system. And this, this 10% really is about how food travels from rural areas to the cities where most of us live now, um, is an important site of greenhouse gas emission. And it's one that I know we'll, we'll be talking about later on. But basically it's these three areas uh, of stealing the land, monoculture, and then 
producing this ultra processed food and packaged food for the cities uh, and then you know wasting that food that drives uh, the the food system's greenhouse gas emissions okay let's now shift our conversation towards cop 28 first of all i wanted to ask both of you why you have decided not to go to cop so raj why aren't you there and eddie why is slow food not going to be present at the conference Sometimes I have uh, like reserved feelings about the COP because uh, I've put it always clearly that it's a, a very good opportunity that should be discussing on uh, real solutions to stop the climate crisis. But in many cases, we uh, realize that uh, it's a, you know, an opportunity that is uh, slowly has been stolen away from us, uh, from the planet, uh, by the corporations that many times at the forefront of uh, of pollution, but also. We're talking about uh, real solutions. Many times we see the COP focusing on uh, things uh, that are not really tangible in way of uh, addressing the emergency uh, that we are all facing, the climate emergency. So although the Paris Agreement put it clearly that we need to put uh, food security, hunger and the vulnerability of the Uh, production systems in the face of climate change, we need to put it at the forefront. But this has always not come out uh, pretty well. And uh, we've seen the previous editions, uh, uh, conferences uh, focusing on uh, loss and damage, but not really giving agroecology and other key strong solutions a chance. So I think uh, that is why uh, some of us uh, have a bad feeling about, about the COP. Again, Eddie said it all. I, I mean, I, I think. First of all, I'm very glad that uh, slow food won't be there. Uh, and the reason I think that it's important not to be is because as a wide international organization with uh, members across the world, attending would signify a certain kind of accepting of the legitimacy of the process. And my reading of what's happening there is that it's going to be worse than COP27, which in turn was worse than COP26. Uh, at COP26 in Glasgow, there was a little bit of wiggle room to actually get things done at the conference. And there was space to discuss. There was a lot of space to protest. One of the great things about uh, COP26 in Glasgow was uh, we were able to take over the streets and march and have our voices at least uh, signify that what was happening inside the halls of power were illegitimate and that ambition needed to be raised. And this is really important. You know, I mean, I, I've been at uh, international meetings where having the big protest outside really does matter for what happens inside. I, I, you know, I was at the World Trade Organization meetings in 1999 in Seattle, um, and I was inside as part of the Zimbabwean delegation, but I was also outside as part of the protesters. And going inside and outside, you were able to see how the vast protest and upheaval outside change the dynamic inside. Uh, and so, you know, the, the organizers of COP have learned their lessons and they, they've put it in places now with far less capacity to be able to, uh, to protest. Um, so e Egypt last year, uh, and of course now you know, the absence of any real space to protest and uh, say that this, this is illegitimate on the inside is, makes it just really not worth going. In addition to the fact that every year, although food has become more and more prominent, it has also become uh, more and more co-opted. Now, what I mean by that is like last year uh, in at COP27 uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh, uh, a colleague of mine with whom I wrote this wonderful book, Inflamed, uh, her name's Rupa Maria. She was there uh, and looking around and seeing uh, all these newfangled uh, agricultural technologies for food systems. 
And she described it beautifully as the trade show at the end of the world. Uh, you know, these are technologies that allow the industrial food system to carry on as normal. It carries on exploiting workers. It carries on feeding us food that is driving the health crisis. It, it carries on as if we are not in, on the precipice of the sixth extinction. We're not going through the sixth extinction. Um, and that we're not living through the hottest summer on record, the hottest year on record. So you know, already by COP27, a lot of agricultural tech giants and their friends, the United States Department of Agriculture, um, had already started moving into this world of, well, we're going to fix this with technology and what we need is smart tractors, more uh, sort of chemical intensive agriculture of one kind or another, and agroecology is just a distraction. Uh, so their technological push is like all middle class environmentalism, which it aims ultimately to keep things the same. You, you, you want to change everything, but actually you want things to remain the same. That's the tenor of the Aim for Climate Initiative, for example, that, that was showcased last year at COP27. This year, there's not even that. I mean, you, you'll hear about leaders' declarations on climate change in which forward-thinking leaders are going to observe that actually food and climate have something to do with one another. And, and this will be a, a piece of paper that just says, well, we should probably do a little bit better. I don't need to go to COP for that. Uh, I don't need to go anywhere where actually most of the agenda is already set in stone. And what is essentially is going to happen is one very long press conference. And at the press conference, you can't change anything. You can ask a question or two, but no one's going to pay attention. The, the, you know, everything's already been written. So for this reason, I'm very cynical uh, about COP. And of course, you know, you, you put an oil executive in charge of the agenda. You, you don't expect the big change to happen. But particularly when it comes to food, I think any sort of attendance there might run the risk of legitimizing what has essentially been a, a, a desperately undemocratic process and one that leans very hard into industrial agriculture and new technologies for industrial agriculture, rather than taking the step back and saying, hey, maybe we need to, to address very seriously the livestock, uh, industrial livestock. Maybe we need to address very seriously uh, the marketing of these uh, ultra-processed foods. Maybe we need to take very seriously uh, land dispossession and the need for land reform. All of this is not on the agenda. Uh, and if we're serious about climate change, then it needs to be. And this is an indication to me that COP28 is not serious about the food system. I really like the expression you used that COP is just a big press conference and everything has already been decided there. Eddie, did you want to add anything? Yeah, like uh, what, what Raj said, it's, uh, it has turned into a very big uh, press conference where false solutions are presented by those who are actually causing the worst damage on the climate. So that is why being there would be like putting a rubber stamp on all these false solutions. So it's, it's actually better to stay and work with communities to build more agroecology projects, more agroforestry initiatives, and also work on real solutions and support communities, build resilience to the climate crisis and put an extra effort on the work of the rural communities, the work of the farming communities, to stop the climate crisis. So COP27 in 2022, for the first time, included a dedicated focus on food. However, it was made space for big agribusiness to expand their operations and profit. From what I've heard from your conversations, we cannot expect much on food at this COP, or can we? 
Yes, there, there, there will be a, a, a special focus on food systems, including the launch of the 1.5-degree uh, roadmap for uh, food systems from the UN Food and Agriculture Organization. Uh, this is already good if someone is uh, putting food on the table. And also, my following of the, what is happening there, they will also try to secure the commitment of heads of state uh, and government attending uh, this uh, conference to sign the first ever leaders declaration of food systems, agriculture and climate action. This is bound to be a landmark uh, commitment consolidating global ambitions uh, and firmly establishing food systems as a prominent item uh, on the agenda. But this shows that food and agriculture will not be missing from the agenda. Food and agriculture is going to be talked about a lot in this scope. But are we talking about the right transformation of the food systems from the destructive industrial system to agroecology? So we might be seeing food on the agenda, and yes, it's not going to miss, but what is missing is the engagement with the grassroots causes of the problems. Like Raj said at the beginning, giving us clear figures that food production contributes to a third of the total greenhouse gases. This is a very big percentage, but what are the root causes of the problem? The fossil fuel-based production systems, the industrial livestock and meat production systems, and also many other destructive production systems that characterize the current global uh, food system. We need to talk about the root causes of this. And um, this is missing on the agenda. We need to talk about the recognition of the social ecological complexity of the food systems and the commitment to address the power imbalances and capitalism as part of the problem. This is what is missing in COP. Food might be there, but the root causes of the problems and the real solutions to the climate crisis are missing in COP28. So we should not be blinded by putting food on the agenda when the real, real gist of the problem is not touched, when the real solutions like agroecology that have been uh, recommended uh, by ISPCC are not uh, discussed, are not respected, and are not given priority. I, I want to just ch chime in there because, I mean, Eddie, you're exactly right that, that food, there's going to be more food at this thing than ever before, and it's all going to be of the wrong kind. I, I think the thing that frustrates me is that there's quite a lot of low-hanging fruit we could imagine countries adopting in their nationally determined contribution. So, you know, the, the, the sort of promises that countries make, and they, they, they usually break these promises because, you know, what is it? It's just a promise. But you know, when, when countries even just think about, oh, well, we should probably reduce greenhouse gases, where should we look? And in, inevitably, they look to industry and energy generation. But there's quite a lot of really easy to attain changes in the food system that can happen much faster than shifting your coal-fired power station over to a solar one. Um, the, the speed at which we can attain these goals in the food system is actually quite high compared to transitioning energy. Um, the problem, of course, is that the capitalists who are there are going to lose money. Um, you know, by shifting to reduce the amount of chemicals you use on your land, for example, by becoming agroecological, who's going to win from that? Well, of course, the pesticide industry is going to lose. Uh, and even in, in Europe, you know, when, when you saw uh, the, the war in Ukraine, all of a sudden, the European Union's plans to reduce pesticides use in, uh, throughout Europe was subject to the most ferocious lobbying. And those plans are now effectively dead in the water. The, the chemicals industry is very serious about making money and very serious about doing that at the expense of the rest of the planet. 
um, because they work on a quarterly system. As long as they make profits the next quarter, they don't really care about the future of the planet because that's not what they're for. These are companies chartered to make money and that's what they're doing. And if they have to buy our governments to do that, that's what they'll do. But if we were to shift towards better managed production practices, um, we could reduce greenhouse gas emissions from that sector by 18%. If we were to halve food waste, um, we could re reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 8%. But you know, I mean, here's, here's the story that, that I'm just thinking about at the moment. Here in the United States, we have uh, the rise of these drugs to fight diabetes, but which, as a side effect, cause people to consume less food. And there was a huge outcry uh, that you know some people were taking the drug to lose weight, and all of a sudden the processed food industry's stock price fell. And there was all kinds of debate in the financial press about, well, look, is, is this the end of junk food? Um, but if we were to take the end of junk food seriously as a climate change solution, then it's not that everyone would be on Wegovi or whatever it is. We would be seriously redesigning our food, food systems to move away from the kind of processed, an ultra-processed crap uh, that the food system provides us. And the sign that no one's taking that seriously is that that hasn't been mentioned once. We can inject ourselves with a drug and that will cause a massive stock price fall in Kellogg and Pepsi and all the rest of it. But we can talk about climate change and all these companies are going to be at COP saying, oh, you know, Coca-Cola is, you know, is, is very keen on sustainability. Uh, they may even trot out a, a glass bottle that they refill for you at COP28. But ultimately, they're selling us shit that's killing us and is dependent on a very destructive food system, and they have no intention at all of doing anything about it. Otherwise, you'd see it in their stock price. So all of this is to suggest that you know food is going to be there. You'll see the food companies, you'll read the press releases, and you have to see through them to understand that this is not where the interesting action is happening. I have another couple of questions for you, Raj. So, um, Mariam Almheri, the United Arab Emirate Minister of Climate Change and Environment and COP28 Food Systems lead in July called on governments to demonstrate leadership by signing the first ever leaders declaration on food systems, agriculture and climate action during the food systems summit in Rome. And the declaration will invite the national governments to align their national food systems and agriculture strategies with their nationally determined contributions, national adaptation plans, national biodiversity strategies, and, and action plans. So um, my questions are, first of all, could you explain to us what is the Leaders' Declaration on Food Systems, Agriculture, and Climate Action? And what can we expect from governments in terms of nationally determined contributions? Um, you know, I mean, there, there will be this sort of press release around a bold vision for taking action around climate change and food systems. And that's the, the leader's declaration that, that comes with a bunch of non-binding commitments around, you know, scaling up the integration of food and agriculture innovation, for example, and recognizing how traditional agricultural practices play a major role. I mean, I can read you the press release, but that's what it is. It's a press release. It's a statement that, oh, yeah, you know, food and climate change have something to do with one another. But in terms of specific commitments, as far as we can see for now, this leader's declaration uh, is precisely that. It is a statement of recognition that the food system and agriculture have something to do with one another, but it's not terribly commit, you know, sort of commitment laden. Um, what I am interested in, though, is the report that uh, IPES, the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems, I'm a member of that panel, uh, and my students and I uh, did some research that appears in the IPES report. The report's called From Plate to Planet. Uh, and the idea is looking at how governments are actually 
taking these commitments you know, that they're trying to reduce their, their greenhouse gases and where the interesting action is happening. Um, and I, I do want to just tell you a, a little bit about where we found the, the most interesting action happening, and it wasn't at the national level. Uh, in general, uh, although th there are a couple of countries here and there that, that are taking sort of bold initiatives, in general, most of the exciting policy is happening either at city level or at state, you know, sort of subnational state level, you know, provincial or territory level. Uh, and that, I think, is important for a couple of things. If you like slow food, what do you like about slow food? You, you like the fact that there is an engagement with terroir. You like the idea that there is sort of tradition, but also a kind of political inclusiveness that links the producer to the consumer in ways that are not exploitative, but are in some way connected. Um, that's what cities are mulling over. And some of the best cities are taking on a political process and moving slowly to make sure that everybody is included in a consultative process that generates climate action plans that include the food system. And that means some uncomfortable moments where uh, you know, workers in cities and peasants in rural areas and women's organizations and indigenous people, um, groups that have traditionally been pitted against each other through national political sort of machinations, are coming together uh, to work on the sort of food system plan. So Colombia, for example, has uh, some really interesting ideas at the nation state level. Uh, Scotland, for instance, has some really interesting ideas around how land reform might work uh, in the food system. You know, Glasgow has consultative processes that, that sort of wed the idea of uh, changing diets with food waste management. Uh, and when you look at the municipal level, it turns out that the fossil fuel companies are not there with the same power uh, and the food companies are not there with the same power and the pesticide companies are not there with the same power that they are at your national government legislature and they won't be there. You know, you'll find it much easier to access democracy at your city or your state level than you will at the national level where the fossil fuel companies have bought everyone up. So what we say in Plate to Planet is not only are cities these great laboratories for you know, sustainable, slow, uh, in, you know, in, in the slow food way, you know, really integrated and thoughtful and engaged climate action, but those need to be appearing in the national determined contributions so that uh, we can actually move forward in some very concrete, uh, realizable and sort of rich uh, w with metrics kinds of ways. Thank you, Raj. And Hedy, another question for you. Which solutions are on the table at COP28? Everybody's talking about an urgent food systems transformation, but what should we be talking about, according to you? Uh, I, I, I actually want to uh, draw back to what Raj said about uh, governments being uh, bought by the, by the corporations to make uh, pathetic decisions in, when it comes to addressing climate change, when it comes to uh, transformations in the food systems, or when it comes to address, uh, working on the solutions to the climate crisis. But again, uh, I want to discuss a very big uh, topic here on greenwashing. Yeah? This is uh, something uh, like we discussed uh, 
before like uh, false solutions are being presented in a big press conference and you cannot change anything. But again, me, a person who comes from the Horn of Africa, where the increase in temperatures send a lot of uh, uh, Maasai people into food insecurity, a lot of people in Uganda, in Ethiopia, in many other parts of the world into not knowing where the next meal will come from. We expect a lot from our leaders, but it's very unfortunate that many leaders at COP28 have uh, released the four-point food and agriculture agenda for the conference, uh, which will call for governments to work with industry to find new solutions. And this uh, is very unfortunate because, we, we, like we said uh, before, that there are low-hanging fruits um, as solutions to the climate crisis, like agroecology that is recommended by IPCC, many community-based uh, solutions also at the municipal level, many uh, programs like on land reform, like on cutting uh, or eliminating food loss and food waste and many other initiatives. But again, uh, working with the industry, uh, that is the, the leading uh, polluter and that is always finding a way of uh, jumping out of the pan uh, when it comes to exposure of what they are doing. So as some of the biggest companies, um, they are really happy with this uh, kind of uh, agenda because uh, these big companies which are working on meat, they are working also those who are working on dairy farms, eggs and other industrial and highly polluting food establishments. They grow more concerned about uh, their climate villain images and everyone is now focusing on them and uh, knowing that they are actually the biggest contributor and they are making life impossible on this planet. Now they are turning to greenwashing techniques. And these are well-known tactics deployed by the oil, gas, uh, junk food uh, businesses and uh, sweetened beverages like uh, Coca-Cola, like PepsiCo and many others uh, to shift the debate away from the meaningful action that we need to do. We need to stop the junk food. We need to stop food waste. We need to stop the wasteful culture. We need to stop fossil fuels. We need to stop uh, chemicals in, in the food production systems. We need to adopt agroecology as the approach that will take us. But these meaningful solutions they don't make it uh, on the agenda. They, they, these industries are trying uh, to work so hard to shift the debate away. So they also the agriculture in industry has a lot to be worried about. Me as a farmer, I have a lot to be worried about because uh, when uh, uh, someone is talking about the contribution of agriculture, even my agroecological farm uh, is, is put in there. But again, when we look at the production systems within the agricultural uh, industry, within the agricultural system, meat emits around a third of the global emissions, like what we said uh, before of methane. So uh, looking at all the greenhouse emissions that we have been talking about, the UN and the world leaders, as the quickest route uh, to slow global warming, they are actually only looking at uh, uh, false uh, solutions. So uh, farming also is now greatly relying on uh, synthetic fertilizers, and many of these fertilizer-producing companies and agribusiness corporations are the ones uh, who are present in the COP, and they're the ones who are uh, the, the government's asking to, to, to find uh, solutions. That's why they are coming up with like hijacking um, uh, concepts and approaches, they are hijacking sustainability, they are hijacking uh, uh, agroecology, they are hijacking each and everything just to present their greenwashing uh, solutions. Raj, do you think 
that COP28 will support the destructive practices of the industrial food system that cause one-third of global greenhouse gas emissions and promote false solutions? Yeah, I mean, I think, Eddie, really, you put your finger on it, where you've observed the, the, the structure of how this works, which is, look, industry's already at the table because they've bought the table and they've paid for everyone at it. And now they're, they're ready to have you, civil society, come in and, you know, some civil society will take the money um, because not all civil society is the same. So some civil society is social movements uh, of people who have died fighting for uh, land and others are, you know, the sort of tin pot NGOs where someone runs a consultancy and is prepared to misrepresent their base and say, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll come in. We'll, we'll pretend that you are properly democratic. Uh, and we will join you at your table. We will take your business class fare to, uh, you know, to the Middle East and we will go shopping afterwards in Dubai. Um, but ultimately change nothing. This is the really interesting problem ahead. And it's probably the last point that I, I want to make because I don't think that this COP is going to generate uh, the kinds of massive transfer of wealth that recognizes the damage that the global north has caused the global south. This is, you know, centuries of extraction. And I, I don't see the, the funds coming from an increasingly xenophobic Europe or United States or Australia or Japan uh, to engage in reparations for the damage that they have caused throughout the global south. And particularly, you know, the, the, the loss and damage that is already going on in some of the poorest countries in the world. You, you see the the minuscule amounts of money that are being offered by you know these donors, uh, and they'll they'll be holding like, oh look, we're we're going to create a little cow shelter for you, so that when the water comes, you can take your cows up the hill and you can put them there. Um, and you know, this is a real project, by the way, in Bangladesh, where the donors are also paying for shrimp farming to be expanded and the mangroves to be pulled up. And then they offer a little cow house at the top of the hill. And uh, as if these two things are not related, as if the destruction of the mangroves doesn't make climate change and flooding worse. But you know, th this, this is the kind of stupidity that they have where they're prepared to offer the little trinkets to the right people, but never cancel the debt and never offer, offer reparations. And until you have debt cancellation and reparations from the global north, this is all you know, show. Um, we're not going to see any limits to fossil fuel. We're not going to see an end date for when fossil fuels must absolutely be off the agenda because yeah, this is coming from the Middle East where you know, their livelihood depends on pretending that we don't have enough energy in the world to, to transform the way that, that our climate operates. So all of this is a kind of strange theater um, that's happening. And you know, Eddie, you, you've observed exactly that this is about partnership because no one wants to be angry with one another. No, we must all come together. We must all be friends. Um, and the fact is we can't be friends about this. We must have enmity. We must have uh, a lot of confrontation uh, with this power. And we must uh, aggressively uh, insist that these are the bastards who stole. And what do we do with thieves? Well, yeah, we, we, we certainly engage in some sort of restorative justice. And these are the companies that need to be expropriated so that we can start moving in the right direction. If industry's at the table, there's not going to be any of these happy outcomes. But then the, the, the interesting question is, all right, here we have agroecology. We love agroecology. Agroecology is great. Uh, and we have all these cities where there are workers and there is all kinds of things happening. What are the links that slow food can build between you know, the eaters and the growers so that we can all recognize together that we have to take on 
these corporations. And I think that that political moment in agroecology is now. We need to be thinking very, you know, very systematically about how peasants and workers come together, because otherwise agroecology will just thrive in the fields and, and you know, only the middle class will be able to afford it. And that's not the world we need. We need this kind of systematic political program. Uh, and it's only something as big as that that will stop these corporations. And you know, the good news is, again, uh, if you look at our IPES report from uh, the, the field to the plate, uh, you, you'll be able to see uh, how some of these alliances are being forged and sometimes how cities are helping. Um, but we do need these alliances and we need the, the conscious, slow politics that slow food is so good at uh, to be able to bring together, you know, sort of this kind of municipal organizing for really radical change. Thanks again, Rash Patel and Edward Munchibi, for this super enriching dialogue. It helped me a lot to have a better idea of what is going on at COP28, and I hope you guys found it as useful and interesting as I did. If you want to be updated about current advocacy topics around food, we suggest you follow Slow Food Europe on Twitter. You will find the link in the podcast description. If you like this episode, remember to share it with your friends and to give us a good rating or review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you are interested in sponsoring the podcast or if you have any suggestions for us, reach out to podcast at slowfood.it or via our Telegram group. This is Valentina Gritti and you have listened to Slow Food, the podcast. Ciao!